when you're buying or selling a practice, the two ways that are that it's usually done are either what we call an asset deal or a stock deal. So in an asset deal, you are buying or selling so basically all of the assets of the medical practice itself, including goodwill, your patient list. So that, that's typically almost the, always the most valuable asset of the practice. The other way you can do it is as a stock deal. So if you have you know, Justin Harvey, MD, PLLC. Uh, I'm making you a doctor. I hope you don't, you, you, you don't mind. You can actually sell your membership interest in Justin Harvey, MD, PLLC. And instead of walking away with the assets, your buyer will walk away with the actual the actual company. So those are the two specific ways that you, you can do it. There's, there's other things like, you know, we can talk about mergers and contribution agreements and partnerships and stuff like that. But that's, that's typically, those are advanced topics. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to APM Success. This is episode 132. I'm joined today again by a friend of the show, attorney Scott Weevil. Scott is based out of California. He has a healthcare and business M&A focused practice. He's been a real valuable resource for clients of mine, as well as just me. I've learned a lot from him and appreciative for his time. Thanks, Scott. Absolutely, Justin. Thanks for having me. And um, I'm excited to discuss our topics today as I, I think that lots of things are evolving, particularly here where I am in California, as well as across the country. Yes, absolutely. So what we want to cover today is talk a little bit about MSOs and the way that MSOs interact with independent practices. Like, why would I want to use an MSO? What are some of the changes happening in California as it relates to MSOs and physician versus non-physician owners of those MSOs, as well as a little bit about deal structure. And for independent practitioners who are considering the deal structure types of questions, what does it mean for them? And get give us some great things to think about. So Tell us right now what's happening as it relates to the MSO question in California. Sure. And I think just to set the stage here, an MSO, it stands for Management Services Organization. And at least in theory, they are designed to support clinical practices. And here in California, a clinical practice needs to be in a professional corporation or PC. In other states, a PLLC is also another form that's available. And some states do not have entity entity rules. So in California and in these other states, you often get a sort of bifurcated structure where you really have the overarching whole practice housed in two entities, one of which would be the MSO and one of which would be the actual practice or clinical entity, which I may refer to as the PC, just that's what is what we have out here. And so in its original conception, the MSO is designed to provide basically administrative and management, as the name implies, support services to the clinical practice. So in, in broadest form, this could include the MSO renting the office space, the MSO providing the front desk staff, any staff that's not in clinical, the MSO providing all the office furniture, the MSO running your HR, the MSO potentially running your billing, the MSO handling your marketing, handling your hiring, basically everything but the clinical practice of medicine. And that would be the broadest form. Obviously, you can also get these services a la carte. And that's 
That's relatively unobjectionable. There are rules, you know, in California, particularly and in New York and other states regarding the corporate practice of medicine, which I may call CPOM or CPM, that basically say that medical practices need to be owned by physicians. That's not the case in all states. For example, Utah is not is not one of those states. And so every state has its own rules on just what MSOs can take on before they cross that line and are involved in the corporate practice of medicine. So as far as the rationale there, I I can imagine, you know, why we only want healthcare providers to own the parts of the ecosystem. Can you describe a little bit of that? Of course. I mean, there's obviously, um, depending on who who my client is, there's arguments on on both sides of of this question. But obviously, you know, the the first grade version of why, why that's the case is you want care decisions to be made based on clinical factors, not financial factors. I mean, point blank. On the other side of the table, I would say yes, but our healthcare spending is out of control and we need some view as to efficiency in making those clinical decisions. But CPOM is something that, you know, like I said, in New York and California are very strict. There are a lot of other states that are strict and there are a lot of other states that do not do not have these regulations. And in those states, you simply you simply say the care decisions are down to the physician, not obviously the CEO uh, or, or owners if they're, if they're lay persons. Right. And so what's happening in California as it relates to the evolution of the MSO and practice relationship? Sure. And, and this is happening nationally. So in my first sort of original conception of MSO, I did describe the MSO as a structure that the physician independently goes out, interviews, and hires to help offload functions of the practice so they can concentrate on being doctors. And like I said, you know, unless you're doing something somewhat abnormal with the way you pay the MSO, each state has different rules. It typically needs to be fair market value in California. You can, you can pay based on percentage of revenue. Like in New York, you absolutely can't do that. But as long as you're not doing something you know, that's, that's wrong there, you're in pretty good shape. What, what is happening is in these states with corporate practice of medicine restrictions, private equity firms and other buyers are using MSOs as a way to acquire basically a financial interest in a medical practice. And so the way this works is it sort of flips the traditional model that I just spoke of on it on its head and reverses it. So instead of, you know, you as a plastic surgeon going out and hiring this administrative firm, it's really the administrative firm going out and hiring a PC to do this the clinical component of the work. And you're seeing this happening for lots of reasons. The the main reason is because that PC has to be owned by licensed persons, typically physicians. There's some exceptions for other other healthcare licensees, but typically physicians that a private equity sponsored group cannot go in and buy shares in the PC. So this is a way that you can indeed acquire, you know, a practice, not the clinical function, but the non-clinical functions of a practice as a financial player, as a what we'll call a layperson. So can you describe how that deal might be structured just so I can understand. So I understand if I'm a physician, I have a practice and I want to outsource a few functions and I'm going to hire someone for either a percentage of my revenue or for some sort of disclosed flat fee. If it's the other way around, how would that functionally work? 
So typically what happens is the MSO, we won't go through a context of buying a practice, but the, the MSO would basically pay the doctor a percentage of revenue is one of the very common models you see. And it may be, you know, surprise, it needs to be fair market value for the MSO to be in compliance, but it can be surprisingly low. It can be 10% of revenue. I mean, you need a fair market value analysis to support that number, but it's almost the other way around. You're almost contracting with the MSO to provide services. And instead of you retaining the lion's share, they may do so. Now, in fact, as you know, depending on the overhead in general, you know, hopefully you come up with a number that is actually a fair market value number. If you're running at 25%, you know, net, and that's you're paying the MSO 75, that that sort of makes sense. And so the rationale is if I'm the MSO, I'm doing staffing, I'm doing billing, I'm doing marketing, I'm the one basically providing the patients to you, doctor. So you just treat the patients and then we're gonna split up the revenue from those patients in some negotiated split. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And I know it's a fine distinction because they're mirror images of each other, but I think the fundamental concept is sort of different. If you look at it as the physician getting the MSO to help them out versus the MSO getting a physician to help the MSO out with the clinical component. So what's happening right now as it relates to new legislation? So last year, there was a bill introduced in California that was tabled, we may see it come back, but that was essentially trying to restrict the MSO activity in California, particularly with respect to financial players. We, you know, historically there has been less private equity activity in California because of the strong CPOM restrictions, but now we are seeing an uptick. And this is something that relates not just to traditional physician practices, but like I also do a lot of work for med spas and med spas are essentially on the same model that you have a physician that provides the clinical oversight and component of the, of the Botox and chemical peels and things like that. But the real med spa itself is basically the MSO. So, so it's the same type of situation. So going forward in California, if this legislation is enacted, obviously it presents risks to those, those players that are involved. In MSOs. And I think I don't want to jump ahead, but this also relates to structuring because if you're establishing a physician practice and one of your goals is to make it sellable down the road, it probably does make sense to start an MSO structure at some point, even if you're as the physician, the sole shareholder of both, because having that MSO in place gives a vehicle for outside investors to get involved who aren't physicians. Uh, that's a little bit off topic, but I want to make sure we covered that. So let's zoom in on that point. So that's the, the, I guess, the quandary right now is that the MSO is the entity type that non-physicians, non-clinicians can own a stake in, whoever that is, in some cases, private equity. And that's the point at issue is that this proposal is, is trying to say, we basically, we don't want private equity involved in MSOs anymore. And so they're trying to, they're considering revising this rule to make it to make MSOs also only clinical, clinically owned. Is that right? That's not exactly right. Not clinically owned, but just restricting the scope and the reach into the clinical practice that the MSO can have, basically. So for physicians who are interested in, you know, understand, trying to read the tea leaves and trying to, you know, prepare 
in the event that something like this was enacted, how would things change for those doctors or what would you recommend they do or think about? You know, I, I think right now for both the doctors and the financial players getting involved, whether it is on a private equity scale or a smaller scale, I think this is all very speculative at this point. There is the bottom line here is just to realize that there is regulatory risk. In general, for physicians starting out and thinking about starting a practice or buying a practice, I, I, I typically involve advise keeping things simple at the outset. And unless there's a reason to a compelling reason to warrant greater complexity, to start simple. So I, I would generally advise, unless your goal is an MSO, you know, to be an MSO-led exit. I would start with everything housed in a PC. And if down the road things are going that way, it's not that hard to get an MSO in place. But obviously, if you start with an MSO, you need two entities. They're both going to have different books, different tax taxes. You're going to need an agreement between the two entities. And that complicates things. And, and for sure, there are situations where that's warranted. But it makes sense to me to start out as simple as you can. Yeah, makes sense. There's a lot of corollaries and the personal financial realm. And I get clients who are like, I'm buying a rental property. Do I need like an LLC and some other things? It's like, well, it depends. But frequently, the, the simplest possible answer is, is at least worth strongly considering. Right. And this is just to be clear, this is a little bit different discussion than buying property and a practice. I definitely think sure. the property yeah, should be housed separately from the practice for a number of reasons. But an MSO is a different thing than just than just having, you know, the building or the office condo in, you know, under different technical entity structure. Sounds like a great topic for a future episode. <laughs> cool. So that's the MSO side of things. Let's talk a little bit about deal structure. So another common topic on this show, I know there's a lot of independent practice owners who are listeners and are interested in this idea of what are the options that I have as an owner of an asset of a business that has value. There's not only the income you're making from this practice over time, but there's the ultimate liquidity event, the, the sale of that asset that happens at some point. And so understanding the different ways that this can be structured is an area of your specific expertise. So talk a little bit about the options. And if somebody comes in, sits down in your office and says, Scott, I'm thinking about, you know, getting out of the game. What types of questions are you asking them? Sure. I think lots of questions on that angle, clearly, but specifically with respect to structure, you know, in this context, I think we'll define the um, sort of confine the discussion to purchasing all of a business. So this isn't a partnership buy-in discussion that that sort of presupposes it's going to be an equity transaction. When you're buying or selling a practice, the two ways that are that it's usually done are either what we call an asset deal or a stock deal. So in an asset deal, you are buying or selling so basically all of the assets of the medical practice itself, including goodwill, your patient list. So that, that's typically almost the, always the most valuable asset of the practice. The other way you can do it is as a stock deal. So if you have you know, Justin Harvey, MD, PLLC, uh, I'm making you a doctor. I hope you don't, you, you, you don't mind. You can actually sell your membership interest in Justin Harvey, MD, PLLC. And instead of walking away with the assets, your buyer will walk away with the actual, the actual company. So those are the two specific ways that you, you can do it. There's, there's other things like, you know, we can talk about mergers and contribution agreements and partnerships and stuff like that, but that's, that's typically, those are advanced topics. And so 
within these two structures, there are, there are limitations and benefits of both. And I'll say overall, not just for the purposes of medical practices, but almost all small business deals are done on an asset deal basis. And, and one thing I want to draw, you know, this is coming from the M&A industry and small business is basically defined as any business probably with less than $25 million in revenue. So for most of our purposes, that's actually a huge business. I think most medical practices would be very, very happy with that. But basically in an asset deal, which you see most of the time, the advantages are by and large, all past liabilities are left with the old practice entity and you are acquiring the assets which you're allowed to then basically redepreciate, which is which is a huge benefit. That may have some negative st- negative tax implications to the seller, which we'll talk about. And you're also going to have to likely move a lot of things over. And what I mean by that is you're going to have to assign leases. The payer contracts are all with the old entity, so you're going to have to get enrolled with with those payers. So that that's sort of on the asset deal side. On the stock deal side, you know the the benefits are that it's a it can be an easier transaction, right? Just just to give one example, all the staff, all the employees are employed by practice entity. You're taking the practice entity, so those employees don't need to be terminated and rehired like they would in an asset deal. The other big advantage to a stock deal is that the payer contracts are already in place. Now, for the most part, you're gonna those contracts are gonna have what we call change of control provisions, where if there is a change in control, you do have to notify notify the payer. But that can be a lot easier process than sort of having to start anew, like you would with a, an asset deal. The big problem with the with the stock deal from the perspective of the buyer is anything that was a liability of that practice entity is now your liability. So, in other words, if they did not pay taxes. If there is an employment-related claim, harassment, discrimination, something like that, that's you now because you you bought the company. And so for that reason, you typically do not see these transactions done as stock deals. So on the asset deal, the, the payer contract point is, is an interesting one. And I know that, you know, one of the it's it's actually an important asset of a practice, especially if you have good negotiated rates. One of the attractive things about that is, oh man, look at the contracts that they have. On a per procedure basis, they have a lot more revenue because of their negotiating prowess and the way that they've proven, you know, their outcomes over time. So I'm curious, you know, how you think about that dynamic as a buyer. You're you're kind of starting the payer contracting from scratch. Is that is that a factor at all, or or do, have you found that that's a hurdle to buying a practice because the the payer contracts in place are going to get blown up? So it, it can be for sure. I've got a client right now that is private equity backed player and they're buying up practices across the country. And we are doing them on a stock deal basis for that exact reason. We want to get those payer contracts. On the other hand, you know, I think for individual physicians that are buying smaller practices, for the most part, I, the smaller practices don't have the best rates anyway. So, I mean, speaking by and large, and definitely get you a, a payer enrollment consultant that can help you with this sure. on a more nuts and bolts basis. But if the rates are not just incredible, I think it makes sense to do it on an asset deal basis because you're likely to be offered the same rates. Now, I, I do want to be clear, though, 
that, you know, for folks that, that are involved in M&A and other spheres, one of the things you end up with is there tends to be a longer time between signing the purchase agreement and closing, which we call a deferred closing in practice purchases, because one of the things that the buyer is going to want to get in place is they're going to want to have their, uh, their practice entity fully credentialed with these payers before they actually take over the company, because otherwise they're just going to be sitting on the sidelines if, if they are taking payer reimbursements. On the asset sale, since this is more common for smaller practices, can you talk a little bit about the valuation of the components and, and the extent to which that matters from a tax standpoint? So you talked about you're buying the stuff. You know, if, I, if I'm buying a clinic, an office-based practice, there's the, the medical hardware and the computers and all that stuff. Maybe there's real estate involved. I don't know if that adds to complexity. We can set that aside for a minute if we need to. But then there's the goodwill. You know, you said the patient list, there's the brand, the reputation in the community. And there's presumably some, you know, it's like a seesaw. Like the less you value the, the stuff, the, the tangible assets, the more goodwill is sort of built in to the price. So if I'm a seller, if I'm selling my practice, do I care how much is goodwill and how much is my stuff? And, and am I going to, is the tax, are the taxes going to be dependent on how that sort of seesaw is configured? Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, uh, medical practices by and large, unless, you know, you've got an OBL or some, some extensive build out, the ones I've been involved in, the bulk of the value is indeed in the goodwill. And this, this applies to buyers and sellers. Because one of the things that a seller is going to say to you as a purchaser is, well, hey, if we do a stock deal, I get capital gains treatment. If we do an asset deal, I get ordinary income treatment. And that's not exactly true. Intangibles like goodwill are generally taxed at the capital gains rates. And so I was on a, I'm on some emails this morning where we're debating the same thing. And my buyer's attorney basically presented a compelling argument that, hey, if we do this on a stock, an asset deal basis, it's going to massively help the buyer from the tax side because she'll be able to free up cash flow through depreciation early on, particularly while she's paying down you know, the loan for the purchase. And it won't really disadvantage the seller because the bulk of the what we call an asset deal, the purchase price allocation is towards goodwill and intangibles which are going to be treated at those capital gains rates. So a lot of times it can it cannot be as big of a detriment to the seller to do an asset deal as you would think. Now, this is totally divorced from if you own a trucking company with, you know, 45 big rigs, that may be a totally different situation, clearly. But in a lot of these practices, you know, it's just a lease, a couple computers, some furniture and the patient list. And in that context, you know, there's generally not a huge detriment to the seller, but there's a huge benefit to the buyer. And that's that's from a tax side. We, we can also talk about the legal liability side. You know, I, I'm very, very happy in leaving most of those surprise liabilities with the seller and their practice entity. Now, one note on that, there is this concept called successor liability, where there is some potential, even in an asset deal, to be to have the new practice entity sort of charged with the liabilities of the old entity. Those tend to center, at least here in California, around tax liabilities and certain employee like wage and labor type liabilities, payroll taxes for the most part. But your risk there is still way, way lower than doing a stock deal. So if I'm a seller, I'll, I basically, it sounds like based on what you described, 
correct me if I'm wrong, allocating as much as possible, as much as is legally defensible in front of the IRS to goodwill and as little as possible valuing our used furniture and our used computers at, you know, as, as low as we can get away with is, is kind of better for everyone, specifically for the seller, because there's capital gains treatment of the intangible asset, which, you know, if you're a high earner capping out somewhere in the low 20s percent range, rather than ordinary income, if there's more of the value placed on the, the tangible stuff, that's ordinary income, which is, you know, in the, I mean, it depends on what state you're in, but Fed is 35 and up from there. So everyone wins with more valuation pushed to the intangible side. Is that accurate? Well, definitely for the seller, that's accurate. And, and just to be clear, um, what will happen is this will be called a purchase price allocation yeah. and it will be agreed upon in the purchase agreement. So this isn't something that, you know, both parties need to present a united picture to the IRS on this and state taxing authorities. So it's not something that after closing will be determined. This will be typically a discussion led by the tax advisors of both parties. But uh, you're absolutely correct. From a seller's perspective, you're going to ascribe as much value as possible to goodwill. And from, I guess, the buyer's perspective, most of the time that's accepted because in general, like we were going over, for a practice that's not infrastructure heavy, it's true that most of the value is indeed in the patient list reputation and goodwill. And obviously, there's a negotiation happening. The seller wants to know how much of this money is going to end up in my checking account. And that's right. what we're solving for. And so the buyer wants to, you know, help them in that regard if it doesn't cost them anything. Right. Sure. Absolutely. And like I said, most of the time it is true. And I and I do want to underscore that the asset deal is by and large the default. So anyone that is, you know, experienced in this industry should be counseling their clients that, hey, a stock deal is a little weird. I mean, we can try for it, but don't be afraid if they balk. Now, one, one big caveat that I do want to give to that is it is not uncommon for what we'll call an employee physician to buy the practice that they're currently working in from the owner on a stock deal basis. That can be common. And you know the rationale there is they've spent some time in the practice. They're aware of the owner's how how well they have their ducks in the in a row as far as taxes, billing, uh, other things like that, the typical liabilities that that you worry about. Still, though, that that's more from a legal perspective. From a tax perspective, all those benefits we just discussed for buyers doing uh, um, an asset deal still sort of those those hold. Got it. Can you talk a little bit about installment sales, and do you see those applied to these sort of situations? Occasionally, I. You know, most sellers like to just go ahead and get their money. I've had this conversation with several sellers recently that there are there's a number of ways to do this. One way, if you're if what we're trying to do is decrease basically decrease income in any one year to spread it out over time. At the end of the day, the sellers I've talked to all those all those reasons sort of fade away when they realize they can just have cash in their bank account. Yeah. But for a seller that is willing to plan, an installment sale is certainly an option. There are other products out there. There's certain kind of trust structures and things like that where you can actually get the money now, but it's not it's not considered yours by the IRS at one point. Generally, I'm not seeing a lot of that on behalf of sellers. And I think on behalf of buyers, the the installment sales structure you don't see a ton either because they won't control of the, of the practice immediately. Yeah. 
So the rationale for an installment sale, this is when you're selling, a, call it a business or a medical practice over time. And I'm going to sell you one eighth of this practice every year for the next eight years. And in so doing, especially if I have a significant amount taxed at ordinary income rates, which there's break points, you know, the more I make, the more I'm taxed. If I'm having a lower amount coming to me each year, the overall tax hypothetically could be lower. Obviously, there's opportunity costs and a million other variables you got to consider. But and there's different ways to do it, right? Like you can do, you can accomplish the same goal by selling 100% at the outset, but having a note, right? Yeah. But obviously, if you've got a note, there's a credit risk there. And so you got to say, hey, is the tax treatment worth that credit risk? So there's, you know, there's there's ways to consider it besides besides doing sort of like you said, sort of a, a tiered or a step transaction where you buy equity over time. And I guess the other issue with what we're talking about with equity over time is that gets us straight in, that militates in favor of stock deal, right? That almost gets assets off, off the table. I, I'm sure you could do it, but I don't know how we're going to buy 25% of the assets this year, 25 next year. You know, yeah. I, I don't know exactly how that, how that would work. Yeah, makes sense. Talk a little bit about, you know, if I'm a buyer, I want to maintain, I want to make sure the, the handoff of the baton in terms of preserving goodwill, since that is the most valuable part of this practice. I want to make sure that, you know, this practice that's so well respected in the community with these patients that have positive feelings about what this practice represents. I want to make sure that that totally transfers to me if I buy this practice. So talk a little bit about how a seller might think about terms, whether it's like employment or how does that work? And obviously the seller wants it to, well, a good deal <laughs> where both parties are happy is generally better for everyone. So how do, how do you counsel clients to think through that? Sure. You see this in all different ways. And obviously the parties have to come together on this. Sometimes you have sellers that it, they are tired of running a practice, but they still want to work in that practice. Sometimes you have sellers that are done. They are ready to walk away. And, you know, uh, in this, the second instance tends to be a little bit more common, but it is very, very important to keep that seller on generally in the transition period particularly if you're external to the practice because you know you want as much continuity particularly right after the 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 deal as possible and it's not just that i mean most folks would not buy a practice meaning the assets of a practice and immediately move to a different office space because that just breaks up the continuity too much and it's the same thing with the provider and so the two ways you typically do that are with an employment agreement or a services agreement um, it can be part-time, full-time, anything from six months to three years. And just in general, incentivize that departing physician to ensure that the transition is, is smooth. And of course, you are going to have some patient attrition that that's natural, but you don't want to, you know, you don't want to buy a practice based on a 2,500 patient-patient list. And then two years in, you got 500 patients. Obviously, that's not what you want. And so that, that's one way that, that you do it. And then another way that you do it could be through what we call an earnout, where there's some kind of metric. You did, you know, 1,500 patient visits last year. We're buying your practice for $300,000. We're going to pay you $150,000 up front. And basically, your earnout, you get the other $150,000 if you maintain, you know, that same patient visit count. Obviously, you can have near misses. You can do it on a percentage basis. There's other ways that you can do it. That's another way to do it. Realize that there are some stark and any kickback concerns there. So that's something to have your attorney sort of evaluate the level of risk. And another way you can do it is just do that seller financing note 
Because if your seller is holding, you know, a good percentage of the purchase price as seller carry, they have an incentive for you to for you to succeed. Yeah. Right. So really what you're saying is if I sell my practice and it's seller financed, meaning I'm serving as the bank, I'm allowing the buyer to pay me off over time. I need that buyer to succeed and continue to make money in the practice because if that buyer goes out of business, all of a sudden <laughs> the mortgage that they owe me on the value of the practice evaporates. Exactly. And so, you know, there's, I like having um, seller financing. That is one reason. Another reason I consider it as an indemnification fund. So in the purchase agreement, they're going to have all kinds of reps and warranties and promises about the practice. And so one thing we do is we say, hey, if you've, if you've said you've paid all these liabilities, but you haven't, and for whatever reason, then you purchaser ends up having to cover some liabilities, you can offset that note. So if I have to pay whatever, you know, $5,000 of rent that was properly yours and I owed you $100,000 under the note, I can say, hey, now I owe you 95. But the other function of that note is that it also incentivizes the seller to have what we call skin in the game. But one thing to realize is that that note is likely to be shorter term than your bank financing. So you sort of have to make a decision as to whether having your overall monthly payments be higher is a good trade-off for that sort of indemnification pool and the seller's incentivization. What are the other gotchas or landmines or things that someone who's about to transact on a medical practice, either on the stock or asset side, should be thinking about? I think the, the, the credentialing component with the payers is a big one that they don't realize how much time that takes. And particularly on a stock deal, you need to give notice as quickly as possible. Payers typically like to be notified early, and that'll help your relationship with them going forward. Certainly on an asset deal, since you're going to need a practice entity to house the new practice, you absolutely want to get that entity set up, get it an EIN and get it you know, enrolled in Medicare and with all the private payers as quickly as possible, since that's likely to be your gating item. Another frequent gating item is the landlord's consent for the lease. You have to realize that both you as a buyer and the seller are very excited and view the transaction with a lot of urgency. The landlord does not. So often what you're waiting on is that assignment of the lease. So that's something to get started on as quickly as possible. As a buyer, because you have presumably signed an NDA, just realize that this process needs to be coordinated with the seller. You absolutely, unless you the documents or otherwise have permission, you do not want to be contacting third parties on your own behalf without the seller's permission because there are sensitivities. The, the, the seller may be in a sweetheart month-to-month lease. And if the landlord learns that they're selling, you know, that that lease could be terminated or something like that, which would hurt the seller and you. Um, those are some of the common, I think common minds you have to look out for. In general, I'm in favor of getting a letter of intent or LOI in place that's as specific as possible, because I think that that shows you do have a deal that that is going to go forward, even though LOIs are typically non-binding. If you can't agree on an LOI, I have serious questions about whether you're going to agree when it comes to a full definitive purchase agreement. Awesome. Makes a lot of sense. So for listeners, I'll, I'll link in the show notes. So apmsuccess.com slash 132. You can find Scott's contact info there. I'll also link to some of the blog posts of his that we discussed in today's conversation. Also check out his website, weevillaw.com if you want to get in touch with him there. Scott, 
As always, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for joining us on APM Success today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Justin. Take care. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success. Today's podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. Nothing you heard today should be construed as advice for you or your specific circumstances, especially as it pertains to taxes, investments, legal, or healthcare compliance questions. Always consult a qualified expert who knows your circumstances in order to get appropriate professional advice.